ladies, we know what we want from our birth control. But what about what's in our birth control? That's why I chose the 100% hormone-free Paragard intrauterine copper contraceptive. It's the only birth control that uses just one simple active ingredient to prevent pregnancy over 99% of the time with no hormones and no daily routines. Paragard is a small IUD that prevents pregnancy for up to 10 years using copper. Ready to get what you want? Talk to your healthcare provider to see if Paragard could be right for you. Don't use if you have a pelvic infection, including PID, get infections easily, certain cancers, Wilson's disease, or a copper allergy. Pregnancy is rare but can be life-threatening and cause infertility or loss of pregnancy. Paragard may attach to or go through the uterus. Tell your healthcare provider if you miss a period, have abdominal pain, or it comes out. At first, periods may become heavier and longer with spotting in between. It won't protect against HIV or STDs. For product information or to learn more, visit Paragard.com. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Hey, this is Josie from The Hot Dam, and you're listening to Kay Scott on The Hook Rock. Woo! Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome back to The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. I'm your host, Jay Scott. Hope you're doing safe, staying healthy, staying strong out there. Summer is upon us. Summer is here. The weather is warming up. There's a heat wave all over the country. Although things have kind of dipped here in Chicago, there's a little bit of chill in the air, which is nice to wake up to. Uh, You know, 60 degrees, 65 degrees, so that's nice. It'll warm up, though. Back in the 90s, sooner or later. But summer's here. Festivals are happening. Live shows are back. So it's an exciting time for all of us to kind of get back out into the world slowly but surely. Some states faster than others. Just like to tell you that uh, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can check us out on Pantheon Podcast on every platform that has a podcast or wherever you listen. You can hear our old episodes, our new episodes, our music commentary, music interviews, and whatnot. So please enjoy. Write us a review and subscribe to us. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. We've got our Instagram page coming soon, so look out for that. That's exciting. It's going to be like a daily diary of my thoughts on music, just quick two-minute snippets or so. And, uh, yeah, we're all ready to go. But the Pantheon Podcast Network offers some great hosts like Mistress Carrie, Martin Popoff, my guys in the Shout Out Loudcast, Cobras and Fire, and my next guest, which appears with his brother Vinny Apice. We have Carmen Apice, the rock and roll legend, the drum legend. How are you doing today, Carmine? What's going on? I'm good. I'm good. So you just say Carmen and then you say Carmine twice. <laughs> crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. I've had that problem all my life, but yeah, I know some of those hosts. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't consider ourselves, um, you know, a, a podcast thing. We just, we, we just do this show for fun, 
you know, and it started out because of the uh, pandemic. You know, my I have a, a, a show called The Rod Experience that we played at Ron Anusky's place, you know, the Arcadia Theater. And, uh, and you know, when we when the, when the whole thing lockdown came on, I had a, a, a couple of gigs booked with that. And the agent, this guy Steve Love, said, we got to move the dates. You know, we're moving them to October. It was, it was supposed to be April. You know, we're going to move them to October. So I said, oh, okay, you know, if that's what we got to do. He said, but I have this idea to keep you in front of people to do like a show online called like Hanging and Banging, you know? And I said, oh, interesting. So so, so we talked about it. So we, we we put the show together. The first show was me and Ron and Etsy because Ron, he, he suggested Ron be a host because Ron knows so many people, you know, from running the theater, owning the theater. And, uh, I said, okay, so we did the first show and it was just me and him. It was so, when you look back at the first show now, it was so horribly done, you know, but we had 10,000 views on that first show, you know? And then I said, well, let's bring my brother in as the first guest the week after. So we did the first guest, my brother, the week after. And then after that, I said, should just be me and my brother, you know, me, Vinny and Ron, that should be the show. So from then on, it was, the three of us and we've been doing it we did uh probably 53 54 episodes now and uh, and then there we started getting it on these podcast thing that the pantheon podcast and and uh you know and the viewership went up and we started getting you know views viewers every week and once we did the show and then after we did the show everybody watched it on facebook live on my facebook and and you know we started getting ten, fifteen thousand views on a lot of them, and you know here we are. <laughs> now we're now we're going to rock, you know, with the rock and pod conventions, and you know, as a as a podcast host, I didn't even know. You know, I never listened to podcasts. I'll be honest. You know, my wife has a podcast too. She's on a, a network. She has a wild a wild one. Hers, it's. Um, she talks to people over 85 about the really wild life, you know, and she, it's called a life story with Leslie gold. And it's really, really good. And she's a radio talk show host. She was on New York radio. She's on Fox news. She was on uh, Boston radio, you know, so she's like very into it. And yeah. she does the interviews, edited and everything. So she just released it a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, it's doing okay, you know, but I never listen. She listens to podcasts. I don't really listen to podcasts. I listen to music most of the time, you know. I don't listen to talk, especially just listening. Sometimes I'll watch some stuff, you know, but uh, that are, you know, on, on the internet. But as a whole, I'm, I'm just a music guy. Well, we got lots to get into. I, I can't wait to get a little, to know a little bit more about you as a result of this podcast, but. We always start the same way every time we have a first-time guest, and that's the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every yeah. rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Well, for me, I wasn't really hooked on <coughs> rock and roll because you know when I started listening, you know, it was probably the 50s. It was doo-wop, you know, so... It was like uh, things like Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and the Cadillacs and, and all that. So when I was younger, I used to sing doo-wop in school, in like junior high school. Which were, what age is junior high school? 12, 13, you know? Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and we used to sing in the, in the lunch, in the lunchroom bathroom. You know, we'd chime off and then we, you know, sometimes we'd go down to subway stations. In New York, you know, they had a really, really good echo. And we we, we would sing, you know, songs like uh, Gloria, Gloria, Magna Cherry, it's Gloria, you know, things like that. And sing like, uh, I, uh, you know, hey, Tuma, 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 why do fools fall in love? You know, in three parts, four part harmony with the bass and everything. And that's what got me hooked. And then 
my cousin was a drummer, so I used to go to his house and I'd play drums at his house and go home banging the pots and pans. And so little by little, you know, I ended up getting uh, a drum set. And then I was singing and playing drums, you know, and uh, got hooked on the music. And my first album I ever bought was Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich. It was a drum album. And my I have an older brother that he used to do like uh, buy. I remember he bought an Elvis Presley forty five EP, right, which had Hound Dog on it, Blue Suede Shoes, and stuff like that. So he used to play that on a little controller. So between that and the doo-wop and everything and the drums, I just started getting hooked on it, you know. When did it become something that you wanted to do, like get on stage and play drums in a band? Well, after I did my first gig when I was, I don't know, 13, 14 maybe, it was a, it was a dance in the Bronx. I lived in Brooklyn. My father put my drums that I had, a little really itty-bitty drum set, and uh, my friend played guitar and the other friend played trumpet, you know, and... Uh, we we drove up to the Bronx and we made seven dollars and fifty cents each, right? And those days, you know, it actually paid for the gas because the gas was a twenty cents a gallon. <laughs> it's crazy, <clears throat> but you know, I like that. And then you know, I got another gig and then another gig. I actually have a collection of uh, you know those composite uh, school books that you have those little notebooks those. They have their black and white, yeah, snowy-looking yeah. thing. Yeah. And, well, I have three of those. Uh, I know dated 1961, 1962, 1963, you know, and uh, I kept all my jobs in there. I still have those in New York. You know, I got the first gig, seven fifty. the second gig, $15, you know, all the way up to playing weddings and bar mitzvahs and playing jazz gigs and and then rock gigs and working weekly, you know. And and when I was, uh, I graduated high school, uh, I played all through my teens. And, and when I was 17, I bought a brand new 1964 Chevy Super Sport 327, four speed, and I was always into cars. And, uh, and I bought it, you know, I put the $1,200 down that I made from playing. And it was only $2,900, the whole car, you know, brand new. My parents co-signed for me, and I paid the payment, 70 bucks a month or however long it took, you know. And I was very proud of myself that I that I bought this car by playing drums, you know. And then uh, when I graduated high school, I got a couple of day jobs, you know, and, and they always paid the same thing. I'd get up in the morning at 7 o'clock or 6.30 and leave by 7.30 be at work at eight o'clock and get back at six at night. And at the end of the week, I'd make 45 bucks after taxes, you know, is that the minimum wage? That was like a dollar 50. It's crazy, you know? So, and then I'd play on the weekend. Sometimes I, you know, I, I'd do like four gigs at 50 bucks a piece and make $200, you know? And I was thinking, well, what the hell am I working all week for for $45? And I can make $150, $200 on the weekend. And just play and have fun. So I said to my father and mother, I said, I said to my father, I said, hey, Pop, what would you do? Work all week for $45 or work on the weekend for 150 or 200 He said, well, I guess the weekend. I said, good. So I quit my job. <laughs> was that and when it became, it. you know, like when you started to realize that, was that when it became, instead of playing for fun, well, you always play for fun. But you maybe yeah. took it a little bit more serious as, hey, this is going to be my career. This is what I want my career to be. Well, yeah. Well, see, once I started taking lessons uh, when I was about 14 years old, and I, I, my teacher was a, a, a drummer, and he used to play on weekends. He'd make, you know, like he'd make big money. But in those days, you know, he'd make like a 1000 a week playing, you know. And with him, with him playing uh, and making a 1000 a week, you know, I said, wow, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to be like him. You know, that's what happens when you have drum teachers when you're younger, you look up to them and, and you had a nice house, you had a, you had a nice cars, nice house, you had a basement downstairs finished where you had a drum room and where he taught, it was all soundproof and stuff. So I said, you know, 
that's what I want to do. I want to play and give lessons. And, uh, you know, that'll be my, my career. You know, I never thought about making it, you know, making it with hit records and stuff until later on, <clears throat> until I was like 19 years old, you know. As a matter of fact, we used to play gigs in Manhattan and uh, we, we play opposite other bands. You know, one, one of the other bands that my band played opposite was Jimmy James and, and the Blue Flames, and that was Jimi Hendrix. Right, and we we would play with him, and we, you know, in those days Manhattan was <clears throat> really bad. Actually, it's getting bad again, but it was really bad. And uh, we played this club, and it was like you know, all low lives were there, you know. And in a break, we we go up to a, a a black woman prostitute's apartment, smoke some pot, and Jimmy would say, "Hey, I want to make it one day." We look out in the window on the city, and and I said, oh, that's great. I said, I, I never really thought about making it. You know, I just want to make a living, you know. And it's cool because uh, like two years later, three years later, I met him again in London. He was Jimi Hendrix and I was in Vanilla Fudge. And that was pretty cool. But I never thought about making it. I just want to make a living. When you look back, you know, on your career and you, you know, like you just talked about with Jimi Hendrix, you know, knowing him and, and, you know, playing with him when you were in Manila Fudge and through the years, I mean, you look at some of the bands you've been to, whether it was Cactus, you played in the Rod Stewart band, you know, you played on, uh, you know, in the eighties with, with King Cobra and into the nineties with Blue Murder. And now you're helping this younger band out. Kodiak, which I, I think is a phenomenal new band, and I can't wait for their record to come out. When you look back yep. on the span of your career, there's been so many changes and so many differences in rock music. However, now it really has taken a backseat to other genres when it never did that before. What do you think the reason is for that? Um, so I think partially it's technology. You know, I think technology uh, set it back a bit, you know. And, uh, you know, because it's, you know, starting in the 80s, the 80s was a huge decade for rock. You know, 60s, 70s, 80s, big decade for rock. In the 90s, it started, the technology started going on. They started having drum machines and music, you know, and we helped do that. I mean, uh, that Young Turk song with Rod Stewart, was done with an Oberheim drum machine that I brought it in, you know, and we played, I played hi-hat and cymbal, but the rest of it was a drum machine. So, you know, so it just started going in that direction. I think it just kept going, you know, now everything is electronic. All the music you hear is electronic, you know, and I have a studio on my house here. That's where I do my show. Yeah, look at, look how we do our shows, you know, interviews and and then streaming and it's just everything has gone crazy with the with the electronics and the technology i think that's why it's, it's gone that way i mean there's still you know bands that were big are still big you know, like the who and aerosmith and kiss and all that stuff but uh you know i mean and even me you know i'm still here doing what i do i'm still selling and have probably the same size audience we've had for many years, you know. Uh, but you know, it's like um, it's still a, a rock audience. But even even the rock is taking a different way about it, you know. <clears throat> you got that 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 metal that that segment of metal, you know, that uh, you know, like the the fast double bass drums, for instance. They, the bass drums used to follow the bass. Now they follow the, the guitar riffs in that genre, you know. And the singing has gone to a Cookie Monster singing, you know. So it's just branched out. It's just you know different things influence different people that branched out in different ways. But then I think the big toll was that rock radio went under. That's that's the toll, you know. Rock radio went away. It went to classic rock. And classic rock only plays certain amount of songs. And new radio, you know, come out with a new album. There's nowhere to play it anymore. 
and, and everything's going back to singles, really. You know, so it's sort of like repetition. Yeah, I, I, I've noticed that because in the '60s and '70s, you know, it was AM radio, and then you know, and then FM radio started to rise, and DJs yep. were allowed to play whatever they wanted to play. You know, they could play a deep cut, they could play, and, and songs broke yep. because of that. You got yep. a DJ in a in a in a good to great market that started playing a band or started playing a song. That's how bands broke back then, and yep. you know, in the '80s. MTV became the platform that everybody wanted to be on and radio started to follow MTV with what they were playing. And then you, but you always <laughs> yep. had, you always had that back. But you always had radio, but, yeah. you, but you had radio. I mean, you had new song like blue, blue murder, King Cobra, you know, you had new bands coming out. They got airplay that, you know, were all over different you know, 120 stations around the country. Then you went on tour with a big act, you know, there wasn't this pay to play. You know, stuff going on. It just, you know, it, it you know, it, then the whole just everything changed. You know, now I don't know how these bands make it, these rock bands. I don't know how they become big, but it takes them a long time. You know, like I just did uh, Kodiak. You talked about Kodiak. Uh, they just did a, a, a contest kind of show, like a like a The Voice for rock bands. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, No Cover. Uh, hopefully, it'll be on Prime. <clears throat> and they had Alice Cooper and Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm and all these people uh, as their um, judges. And, you know, I, I know Alice for a long time, so, but I got to know Lizzie Hale, and she was saying they were together eight years before they made it. You know? I mean, Vanilla Fudge was together nine months. Jimi Hendrix was together with that band, you know, maybe a year. You know? Different. The Rascals back in the day. They were together like a year, a year and a half, and they're huge, you know? But but now, you know, it takes these bands forever because I guess they got to play around, then they got to build social media. I mean, I don't get the social media baloney. I went to to meet uh, with a couple of labels for um, a couple of bands I was producing, and they said, well, what's the social media like? I said, well, you know, that's... You know, 5,000 people are saying, oh, no, we need 250,000 on Facebook. and We need 250,000 views on, on uh, YouTube. And I said, well, then what do we need you for? You know, and they said, oh, well, then we'll take it up from there. And then you look at some of these, you know, artists. I mean, they got 20 million Facebooks, you know, 20 million views, 100 million views, you know, and... uh we almost had a Vanilla Fudge song on a K, K, uh, what's his name, uh, Kanye, Kanye West song. You know, that song ended up having 130 million streams, right? And that even, that makes a little money at 0.003 cents. <laughs> you know? And that's what you get paid on Spotify. It's awful. It's terrible, you know? Well, it used to be where bands were developed by the record companies, right? I mean, the bands would sign a deal, yeah. and usually it yeah. took by the third album. Like, if you couldn't do it by the third album, the record label would drop you. Yeah. you know. But they would give yeah. you that time to develop a fan base. Usually the, usually the second album, actually. Yeah, second album. You know, But if they would give you yeah. some, some time to kind of you know, get on a good tour and you know, build a fan base. Yeah, yeah build, to build it. You know, yeah. Now you're yeah. expected to have that house built, right? You know, before yeah. you even get signed. And and like your your point is, if you're doing all that to get to two hundred and fifty thousand, why don't you just keep doing it yourself? Why do you need a record yeah. label? You yeah. know, I mean, at well, that point, yeah. You know, some people do that, and somehow they they get it. I don't get it. I mean, for me personally too much work to, for me to do it. I have, uh, I'm producing this, this chick named Lisa G, right? She's really talented. She's not young, but she's talented. She ended up getting 250,000 views on a, uh, on a, one of her videos. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't usually play on like Joe Schmo's record. You know, I usually play on just people who are known, you know, you know, Pink Floyd and uh, Stanley Clark, Jeff Beck, you know, Eddie Money, that kind of stuff, you know. But, you know, but she had a thing called Meat Hook called me. You know, she paid for a call to me, which I don't advertise either. Because they say, oh, I put this on your, your social media, advertise it. You know, that 
people can call you. I said, I don't want to do that. I said, no, I look like I'm, I'm that, that horny to get people to call me for a hundred bucks. You know, I mean, if they find out about it and they call me fine, but I'm not going to be putting it on my face, but Hey, call me and let's talk. You know, I mean, I think that's terrible. You know, I mean, if you want to, I said to them, if you want to advertise, that's fine, but I don't want to advertise it. You know, but anyway, so she called me and I, and, and she wanted me to play on a, a record, and I said, "Well, I, I don't play on Joe Schmo's records, but I tell you what, if you let me hear the song, if I like the song, and I, I co-write it and co-produce it, or produce it, co-write it with you, I'll, then I'll, I'll I'll play on it, you know. And if I like you singing, and she ended up being a great artist, really, a really good artist. So we did that. So now we just released the record on a on a Deco Records, it's called Love Thing, and she does her own videos and she's really talented. I mean, she's, she writes her own bios. She does all that stuff. And, you know, she's used to doing it herself. I said, so I said, I had to, I had to hold it back and say, hold on, let the record company do their thing. And then if they need some help, then get involved. She's ready to throw money at it and everything, you know? <clears throat> so, you know, so some people that have been doing that, that's all they know, you know. I don't know that direction. I always had record labels. I even had my own label. I just closed it down because I didn't. I didn't have time or the personnel, uh, personnel, or the funds to really do the right job, you know. So I don't get how all this happens today. It is a funny time, just because you know, <laughs> especially connecting to the youth, right? Because that's how rock and roll survives, and yeah. You know, when you have young people getting pulled in different directions now, like with either, you know, video games or these travel sports that they're in and, you know, there's very little time for music. However, I do think that rock music has always thrived on angst and anger in the youth. Right. And, you know, when when young people have been sitting at home for the past year and a half, not doing anything, not being able to be around their friends, not having fun. I think that angst and anger is is there for rock and roll once again. Yeah, it is. It is. But, you know, and they have their own way of finding it. You know, like on with all this YouTube and all this, all this stuff, you know. But, uh, but also, on the other hand, you got all the stations that are playing music are playing, you know, pop music. You know, which every artist sounds the same. Believe it or not, I've been listening to the Christian radio, you know, because uh, I've been writing some Christian songs. I'm just listening to it, what it sounds like. And uh, there's a church I go to down here. The band is so amazing. You know, it's a Christian church. They're an amazing band, amazing players. And uh, I, I'm using the singer for the uh, thing. And I'm going to try and get a Christian deal, but I've been listening to the music. And some of this Christian music is pretty good, actually. You know, there's guitars in it. It's, you know, it's rock based, and uh, you know, it's not it's it's not as poppy as what's on pop radio. You know, in pop radio, everybody sounds the same. You know, all the girls sound the same. All the guys sound the same. All the track all the tracks sound the same too. You know. Do you think the rise in electronic music? with young people today has to do with the fact that there's a lack of music education in public schools where they don't learn, you know, or they don't know about real instruments. They don't know that, you know, guitar, drums, bass, but also, you know, brass sections and all that. Do you think that has a lot to do with the shift? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, because like, uh, what they, you know, I was in all the school bands, orchestras and all that. And they had nothing to do with rock music, you know. They barely had a guitar in it, you know. They didn't even have, I don't even think, I don't even remember a bass, electric bass. If anything, it was a bass fiddle and a cello and strings like that, and a timpani. You didn't have a drum set unless you, unless you got the jazz ensemble, you know. That's, that was was the only thing that had some sort of, you know, relationship to um, instruments and, and it necessarily wasn't rock, you know, but, 
you know, matter of fact, I used to, I was the head of the drum section and I used to, uh, bust my teacher's balls. As they say. You know, we'd have like a, a two or three bar drum break and I would start, you know, I would like rock a fire a bit. And the, and the teacher would throw his keys at me and say, a P, stop, or accuracy, whatever he called me. I don't even remember what he called me. Stop rockifying these, these parts, the drum parts, you know? So, so swing was going out, jazz was kind of in, but rock was coming, was, you know, the, the thing coming in, you know? Now it's like, I mean, like we used to always write, you know, on autograph, keep rocking, keep, keep, you know, you rock and so like, what do you say today? Keep popping? Yeah. Maybe keep, keep rapping, keep rapping, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a great question. You know, I mean, there, where where is that? Uh, maybe keep rap. You know, you rap. <laughs> it just doesn't sound right. Even like in the days of swing, you know, you swing. You know, or, or you're swinging. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, like that stuff was swinging. It was great. You know, that stuff is rocking. It was great. That stuff was rapping. It was great. Well, you're rapping anyway. You know, and you know, I, I kind of liked rap when it first started. With King Cobra, we did one of the first rock rap records called Home Street Home. You know, we had this heavy riff, and then we rapped over it. That was before Aerosmith did that thing with uh, Run DMC. It was on our second album. The Capitol never did anything with, you know. And uh, I kind of liked rap when it first came out. Now it's... it's, it's and I, you remember that Federal... I don't know how old you are. A Federal Express commercial with a guy that really talks fast. I think so. Yeah, back in the eight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we were we were doing a rap song with him, right? And we we had a tempo, and we had him rapping at like a double tempo speed, you know, really fast rapping. You know, it's called fast talking man. You know, it had a rock a rock background to it, and we never got it off the ground. We never, I don't even remember finishing it, but I remember working with him. It was pretty funny, you know. Those that King, that King Cobra debut album, I've always regarded as one of the underrated best debut albums of the '80s. I thought it was a great, great record. I agree. I agree, and you know, there's a whole story to that why it didn't happen. Um, just like the Blue Murder record, a tremendous record, and that really didn't happen either. You know, in in, the, in in those days in the eighties, it got to the point where you needed every part of this of the organization had to be in place. You had to have the management, you had to have the agent, you had to have the record company, you had to have the record company's uh, radio department, promotion department. All that stuff had to be worked you know, together in sync in order to get something successful. Right, so what happened with King Cobra is this guy Ray Tuskin was was the head of the radio department. He was a friend of mine and my manager, and he loved the King Cobra stuff when we put it together. So when we were ready to go for a deal, he offered us a deal because he was graduated up to A and R. Okay, and they put somebody else in charge of radio. Okay, so now we had we had everything in place. He wasn't a charge of radio no more. Somebody else was. So when that first record came out, the radio department didn't do their job. They didn't get the airplay that it needed. And we definitely had songs that could have been hits. Dance with Desire. I mean, uh, Tough Guys Don't Cry. You know, songs like Ready to Strike. Great songs, you know? And, and it wasn't even being singles radio it was, it was album oriented radio you know you get like like we did with Blue Murder eventually we got a top five airplay record it was too late you know like that one but the same thing happened with Blue Murder something wasn't in place and then after we did the first album they said we need an album with more singles so we gave them an album with one side singles and one side you know more like the first album and we even used some drum machine stuff on there because, you know, we were trying to get a hit, you know, and 
same thing. Right after that album came out, they signed Poison. And my buddy Ray went back to radio and he broke Poison, who were awful at the time. I just, I mean, you have yeah. to agree. They, were, they weren't very good. They couldn't even play. Now they're better. I'm, I'm, I'm in touch with uh, Ricky Rocker. He took lessons. He's gotten a lot better. But at that time, he was really bad. I mean, I, after the you know, early 90s, I was working with C.C. DeVille, you know, CC wasn't great a player, you know. I'm sure they've all improved now, you know. And now they're still around. They're making huge money, you know. And King Cobra is like in the uh, the, the lower echelons of getting record deals, and and you know, I mean, like I, last night I just listened to I'm re-releasing through Deco Records uh, the, the um, digital part of King Cobra live at the Sweden Rock Festival 216. We had uh, me, Johnny Rod, and Dave Michael Phillips was the originals. We had Paul Shortino singing. And we had this guy named George Ziff, who now plays with Rat. This guy was a mother of a guitar player. So last night, I was listening to it because there were three songs that, that weren't on the, the release that I did on my label. And when I was listening to it, I said, oh, my God, this guy's an awesome player. So I texted him this morning. I said, man, I don't know what you're doing, but I just want to tell you, man, you're playing amazing on King Cobra Live. And, you know, we had we had him singing songs. We had him singing, you know, um, uh, we did Monsters and Heroes, which is one I did with my brother. We actually wrote it with King Cobra, and we played that song. And when we recorded it with King Cobra, we gave it to Wendy Dio for Ronnie's uh, cancer fund because it was all about Ronnie. And then me and my brother recut it together with uh, Paul Sotino. And uh, we released it on our solo album, me and his solo album together. But we played it at Sweden Rock, and the whole audience knew the song, you know? And they were singing with us, and we had him singing Raise Your Hands to Rock. We had him singing uh, new songs from the Frontiers record. And the band sounded great. The audience response was tremendous, you know? But, uh, you know, that's what I envisioned King Cobra to be, playing in front of eight, ten thousand 10,000 people, you know? Because you guys had the image. I mean, you can always make the argument with Poison. It was about the image, right? They looked pretty. Yeah. The girls liked yeah. them. But you guys had that, too, and you guys had better songs. And We, had, we, we were tough. We were tough players. We, we were the kind of players that I was used to playing, you know? When I put that together, I was playing with Ozzy. You know, my idea, I had Mark Free as a singer and I was going to do a solo album. And then when Sharon fired me from that deal, uh, Motley Crue was our opening act. And they had three guys with black hair and, and Vince Neil with white, with the blonde. And I said, oh, and I had black and purple hair at the time. I said, you know what? I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to do, I'm the only one with black hair with colors in my hair. I'm going to get them blonde with colors to be very vivid. And I'm going to get guys that look good for chicks, but play their asses off. And that's what I did. And Mark Free was an amazing singer. You know, who, who knew he was going to turn into a woman a few years later? You know, and uh, but the band was smoking. It was a smoking band. That first album put together, you know, we did a Pasha. Pasha just had the uh, number one record with uh, Quiet Riot. And Spencer produced it. And I, I was responsible for the drum sound that Pasha got that was on the Quiet Riot record. Because I went to work when I played there. I played on 82. I played with uh, Ted Nugent. I brought Ted Nugent into Pasha as a favor to Spencer you know, to do an album I did with Ted. And I didn't like the drum sound. So I went in after that album and I worked with Dwayne Barron, the engineer, on getting the, the Andy Johns drum sound that I was getting with the Rod Stewart group, you know, that I learned to do. And there's certain techniques you had to you know, do to do that. And we experimented. We got the sound. The first band he used it on was uh, Quiet Riot, Frankie Benelli. Second band we used on it was uh, uh, my record with uh, Rick Derringer, Derringer and the Peace, you know. And... Uh, that was doing really well until the record company went out of business. 
You know, there's a lot of crazy things going on in the 80s. But um, but King Cobra's image, you know, it was a whole concept I had. My manager, my manager used to, uh, was, was in the management of KISS. So he knew how to get the press and all that stuff. And we got we got press and visibility like we were a huge band, even though we didn't have the record sales to back it up. Well, you guys opened up for KISS too, right? I think it was the Animalized Tour? We did, we did. And, and the funny thing about that was, because I was friends with the guys from KISS, they actually paid us instead of us paying them. That was when that, you know, people used to pay to be on a KISS tour. They paid us, uh, I forgot what the amount was, but they paid us for every night. And we had, I had my own uh, motorhome and truck, and the motorhome kept breaking down. It kept running, you know, motorhomes and vans and stuff. And, and you know, we became like the, you know, part of the family in the KISS tour. You know, said, oh, man, you made it. Wow, great, great guys. We were getting ready to send the bus out to pick you guys up, you know, stuff like that, you know. But, you know, so we were friends, and that's why uh, they paid us. And uh, and because my manager used to work for the coin, the coin management was, was managing them at the time, I believe. And uh, he managed me for a while, too. So they did us a favor, which was a great favor. But it didn't help because we had nobody in radio at the label working it, you know? Well, that's true because I discovered King Cobra by video, by either MTV or Night Flight. And I never heard King Cobra on the radio in Chicago. And I was always like, why aren't these guys on the radio? Like, this is a great album because I had the cassette back then. But, you know, it was like, man, this album just rocks. What was that song, Ghost Rider, which was another one of uh, my favorite tunes on there. But... You're right. It, it just, you know, for whatever reason, and you just explained why, um, it's, yeah. you know, it's one of those disappointing things that the record, you know, never moved forward and, and became that big record that it should Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when, when, uh, when Ray went back to radio, first band he worked with was Poison and Bam. You know? Oh, yeah. God, we had better songs than that, you know? I'm not yeah. just being egoed out. I mean, no, it's I know true. We had it's it's, it's true. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I'm trying to find a response, but I'm like, you know, he, he's right. <laughs> you know, they they opened up for King Cobra, one of our gigs, and they didn't have that image that they had. They almost they almost took our image a little bit, you know, because after they played with us, and you know, next time we used to go, look at these guys; they're starting to look like us, you know. Yeah, crazy stuff, man. You know, it's amazing, but, amazing how like a band like King Cobra or even a band like Y&T, that was another great band from. Oh, nah, they were a great band. Could great never, band. could never break radio. You know, could never. You yeah, know, yeah. you could. I mean, besides Mean Streak, I don't remember hearing a Y&T song on the radio either. Yeah, I don't remember hearing a lot of Y&T on the radio either. <laughs> Tell you the truth. Uh, they were good. Now, my, uh, Lenny Hayes, boy, he was a phenomenal drummer. He had an amazing foot, amazing foot, you know. And uh, we were all friends, and you know, Dave and everybody. We, you know, we used to hang out in L.A. They come down. Uh, I forgot, I think they were from San Francisco, Sacramento, or somewhere. Yeah, I think and, Oakland. Uh, they come yeah. down. You know, Oakland. They come down to L.A. a lot. We hang out the Rainbow and all. In those days, the Rainbow was like unbelievably amazing, and you know, really, really. You know, the legendary thing, you know. And then, uh, you know, because the Rainbow started in 73, actually. Um, when I went out there with the BBA in LA, that's when the Rainbow started. Um, and Bill, this legend, you know, you go in any time, walking the Rainbow and his Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and ELP and BBA and all these, you know, all these guys, you know. And pretty amazing. What area of music, or what era of music, I should say, uh, is is your your most fond of? Well, about you know, it's hard to say, you know, because when we came out in the sixties, it was so brand new. Everything was like brand new. It, you know, you you could do so many things that what nobody else did, you know, 
And Vanilla Fudge had a top 10 album without having a smash single. You know, we were on the Ed Sullivan show without a smash single. That was amazing stuff, you know. And then you had all the FM stations being born, you know. I mean, it was really, you know, inspiring, inspiring time. And then, you know, in the 70s, it, it just kept going. You know, in the, 17, the 70s, I played with my biggest things. You know, I mean, when I played with Rod Stewart, we did six nights at the L.A. Forum. That's, you know, that's 120,000 people. Everywhere in the world we went, it was like 80, 90, 100,000 people. You know, and I co-wrote Do You Think I'm Sexy? It went to number one, and Young Young Turks went to number four. You know, these songs that I wrote. I mean, I'd written songs before, but never like that, you know? And uh, so that time of my life, you know, into the early 80s was huge. You know, and then I c- continued. So, you know, I guess the 80s for me was my least successful uh, decade as far as selling records and playing in big huge venues you know all through the 70s I played big venues all through the 70s you know and 60s as well you know when we came out uh, the 80s you know I started out with, with uh, in Ozzy 83 up to 83 and then uh, and then I basically uh after Ozzy, I put King Cobra together, and then we, you know, we started playing smaller places, you know, and then uh, that lasted until Blue Murder, and then Blue Murder <clears throat> had the same problem. We had a management problem. We had everything but the management, <clears throat> you know. So, so that's what happened with Blue Murder. We had nobody to control the band. The band was calling the shots, and we didn't know what we were doing, you know, and. Uh, yeah, but Blue Murder in Japan was big. I spent the whole 90s in Japan because uh, the grunge was here and me and guys like me were dinosaurs. Nobody wanted to do anything with us. So I had a band called Pearl in Japan. I did my Katazush record in the 90s that did really well around the world, everywhere but America. You know, and uh, I'm still doing that. I have a box set, Katazush album coming out. Um, with three new tracks on, I got Tommy Fair from Kiss on one. I got uh, Derek Sherinian from uh, Sons of Apollo and Dream Theater playing keyboard like a guitar on another. And I put the kids from Kodiak on a track as well. And then I got Bumblefoot on a new track. And, and it's going to be four LPs, three CDs, a booklet, a little piece of jewelry. It was a beautiful box set, you know. So I actually got a lot of things going on now, you know. In the pandemic, and it's a little bit from all my bands. I got a new track coming out with Vanilla Fudge with Tim Bogart on it. It's the last thing Tim recorded is uh, Stop in the Name of Love by the Supremes. It's done in the same way like uh, You Keep Me Hanging On. So You Keep Me Hanging On, on you, yeah, You Keep Me Hanging On started it, Stop in the Name of Love, finishing it with the, with the original band with Tim, you know. And then we got the new Cactus record out. We're working on a new King Cobra record. You know, we got, I got an instrumental record coming out. We got the box set, you know, so. And we're doing gigs with my brother not coming up and Cactus. And so it's crazy. I'm doing everything for my past. You know, I'm still and you got the podcast. And we got the podcast that happened by accident. <laughs> you know? The podcast is great. I mean, we haven't, I mean, we haven't, we haven't made any money on the podcast or nothing, you know, but, you know, it, it's fun, you know, but it, I mean, there's so many people on there that we've had, you know, I, I was booking most of the guests uh, for a long time. And then uh, Steve Love, the agent, put his, his, uh, some of his employees in there, his team, and they started booking people. And they started booking some good guys. Uh, Paul Schaefer, who's a friend of mine. We have Paul Schaefer and Darlene Love. We just had um, Desmond Child. I mean, come on, that guy's huge. Mm-hmm. You know, as a writer. Uh, we had him. We had, uh, this week, we have Michael DeRocha and Dennis DeYoung. You know, we had so many great teams of people on. And, and when we had, like, Tim Bogert's uh, tribute, we had Joe Bonamassa and Warren Haynes. We had Eddie Van Halen's tribute. We had Ted Nugent, Steve Moss, 
uh, Pat Travis, Rick Derringer. We had Weird Al and Rick Derringer because Rick produced Weird Al's first six albums, the Emmy producing albums. He produced them. Interesting, you know? That, and, you know, Ron said to me, he said, you know, I'm a fan. He goes, when, when Steve asked me to do this, I just freaked out. I said, wow, I'm going to be host with, with Carmine, you know? And he said to me, you know, you don't realize your effect on people. He said it to me. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're Carmine Peace. He said, you know, look what, look what you've done in the business. Look what you've done. Look at how many fans you've created. Look at how many records you played on. Look at all the views you have on YouTube. Look at all, all I mean, come on. He said, you are a real rock living legend. I mean, this is Ron telling me this. And Ron and Esther doesn't have everybody play in his theater. So I said, wow, Ron, thank you. I appreciate it. I guess maybe you're right. I live with Carmine every day. <laughs> well, it's almost, you know, yeah. I mean, when, when you hear the stories that you share and the things that you, I mean, you've got a lot of knowledge about the business because you've been in it forever. And, yeah. you know, you've been, I mean, you, know, you mentioned that you played with, you know, a, a gig with Hendrix in, in his band. I mean, you know, Vanilla Fudge and, and, you know, that era with Zeppelin and Deep Purple and then, you know, going in with Cactus that influenced so many bands, you know, as, as well. And I remember doing yeah. an, an interview with George Lynch last year and he mentioned, you know, the influence Cactus, you know, he used to play Cactus covers. Oh, yeah, covers he, he, covered, he, he covered one of our songs, uh, One Way or Another, I remember right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, and and uh, and then also King Cobra. That that's from my era, King Cobra and Blue Murder. You know, yeah. um, and then uh, you know to now, now you're 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 you know helping out new bands like Kodiak that I'm a huge fan of. I can't wait to hear their their record. I've been you know I had them on. Gosh, the fall of 2019, I had them on the podcast, and oh, I just, wow. I've just been waiting to have to hear that record. But yeah, man, your stories are 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 awesome because as rock fans, there's a lot of us out there like to hear that stuff and like to hear the perspective yeah. of someone that's been did in you, did, all those appearances. Did you ever read my book? I have not. My, I have not. I need to read oh, it. Oh, you got you, you got to read it. Stick it. My life is sex, drums, and rock and roll. There's a lot of sex in there. With my writer who wrote the, the Nick, Nikki Sixes book, The Heroin Diaries. I said, you know, when you write, I said, maybe there's too much sex in there. Just listen, man. The middle-aged women love that stuff. So when I would sell the book at a gig, uh, when I sell the book at gigs, I'd say, you know, like a woman comes up to buy it. I said, this is X-rated. And she would go, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, all these stories in the book and more. But, you know, I, I got to tell you a funny story about you know, the influence of the band. So, you know, I was friends with the Van Halen brothers you know, and the whole band. And uh, we, uh, you know, we used to hang out at the studio. We used to hang out. And they were big Cactus fans. Right, big cactus fans, and you know when they did uh, "Hop the Teacher," Alex told me that the template for "Hop the Teacher" was cactus on parchment palm. It's a very fast double bass drum shuffle. At the time when we did it, we wanted to be faster than "Coming Home" by uh, Ten Years After. You know that was our inspiration for that song. So I'm on the phone with with uh, Eddie one time, and I said, "Yeah, we're doing a reunion with Vanilla Fudge." Eddie says, "Screw that." You're a reunion with Cactus. <laughs> so it made me laugh, but we eventually ended up doing that, you know. Did you guys, so, I mean, how, you know, you talk about your relationship with the Van Halen brothers. Um, you know, what was that relationship like with Eddie? I mean, obviously, you know, he did pass this past October and, you know, it's felt yeah. across the rock community yeah. as, you know, one of the absolute legends, the, you know, a game changer legend similar to Hendrix. Um, you yeah. know, what was your relationship like, like with him? Well, it was, it was fun. You know, he was a captive fan. I remember in 1980 when I played the whiskey with my Carmine and the Rockers band, I had Vinnie Vincent in my band before he was Vinnie Vincent, was Vinnie Cassano. And he came down with Alex and I have a picture of, uh, of, of Eddie and Bruce Gary, you know, from the neck holding me up. I'm laying down and they're holding me up on their arms. You know, we had a fun, fun, uh, fun. You know, they, I knew they were Cactus fans. I got tapes somewhere of, of, of Van Halen playing Cactus and BBA songs. 
you know, and, uh, and, you know, we're friends and Alex, you know, we're friends and he, 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 Alex said, you know, he used to listen to me as an influence and, and, uh, you know, we became friends. I used to go to their studio and hang out and smoke pot with him and, 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 you know, and then Eddie, Eddie started getting a, a bit standoffish, not standoffish, but, uh, more, more like, um, he wasn't as, as outgoing as he used to be when he was younger, you know, as he got older, you know. And uh, and then, you know, I started moving away from L.A., moving with my wife in New York and uh, Connecticut and L.A. I was going back and forth, and I you know, I didn't see them a lot. And, and then he got sick, you know, and then I didn't see him while he was sick. And the uh, last time I talked to him was like 2005 or four, something like that, on the phone. But, uh, you know, we, we, we did get along, have good times, you know, we go to different events. And I remember when me and Alex and Ginger Baker were inducted into the, into the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame at the Guitar Center on Sunset Boulevard, you know, and uh, I pulled up, I had a Pantera at the time. He pulled up in some outrageous car, you know, as I said, I always loved cars, so, you know. We start talking cars, and then we went inside and we did the event, and he hung out, and you know, hung out. We all hung out with Ginger, and you know, and Ginger was always a Ginger was always a grouchy old man. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's amazing, you know, because just the impact that you know he had on music and you know musicians too as yeah. well, you know, and and it's yeah. you know you made mentioned also to your work with Vinnie Vincent, and I know you said some things in the press, you know several months ago about the gig that was supposed to happen in Nashville last year. And also yeah. you know, to kind of connect that with kind of the, the exit of what King Cobra was in the eighties. I know I remember reading an article about how that ended and it didn't end very well too. You know, when you do deal with musicians that, you know, you have an issue with that are maybe difficult to deal with it, you know, how do you move forward? Is it just, you know, trying to, trying to deal with them or just moving forward without them? Well, I just move forward without him, and you know, I don't hold a grudge for long. You know, even when I left Rod, you know, I I got canned from Rod for some stupid reason, and I was signed to Rod's label. You know, for my solo album. You know, he was saying weird things in his press, like, "How do you trust the drummer with his name on the bass drum?" Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, but eventually we we made up and all that. So same thing with Vinny. You know, Vinny was weird. Vinny screwed up our whole deal. He he went back and all the all the um, you know all the deals that we had made about songwriting and and publishing and uh, the split from the band, you know, because you know I was the only name in the band and he he was nobody at the time and you know, he was a great songwriter, a great uh, a good singer. And we had a, we had two other younger guys that were that were really good, and you know um, I said look let's just split all the writing let's do like Van Halen like I did with Cactus and then why. Everybody drives, you know, if it's successful, everybody drives a Porsche. Rather than the, the songwriters drive a Porsche and the drummer drives a Volkswagen, you know? So, you know, because we had all the connections. I had the name and, and all that. So, and then he reneged on all that stuff. And it broke the band up. When when he joined KISS, when he was joining KISS, Paul and Gene called me and asked me what it was like to work with him. I told him he's trouble, you know? And they brought him in anyway, and he was trouble, you know. And then, you know, years went by, and he disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. And then out of the blue, I got this guy calling me and said, you know, if Vinny's going to do a comeback, would you be interested in playing with him? I said, well, I'd have to talk to him. So he gave me Vinny's number, and I talked to him, and, and he was cool, and he apologized for being an idiot, and, and he said, I just want to thank you also because Alan, our manager, and I used to have a drum thing, me and my brother, we, we rented drums. It was called a Peace Brothers Drum Rental. And he needed some drums after he blew our band out for something. And Alan gave drums for a couple of months to use, you know, without me and Vinny really knowing about it because we were out on the road. And, uh, and he thanked me for that. And, you know, things were good. And he said, yeah, I really like to do you know, this, this gig with you and it, with bass players. I said, well, let's get Tony Franklin. He's like, awesome. You know, my new favorite bass player, you know. 
And so we got Tony, and and, we, and the promoter called us, and he gave us a deposit, you know, and he gave Vinny a deposit, and then Vinny blew it all out, accepted, and you know, I was going to give the deposit back. The guy said, "No, you keep it. You put the time aside," you know, and uh, that guy ends up being a guy that books speakers. So he booked, you know, he, he was trying to book me as a inspirational speaker, you know, and. Uh, then COVID hit. Now was the end of that. It's almost like you know, Vinny can't get out of his own way. You know, I mean, it's like oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. He's such a talent too. That's the thing. He's really a great guitarist and a great songwriter. You know, I mean, I had I had these tapes of Carmine and the Rockers finished tapes done by Andy John, and he wouldn't let me release them. You know, I said, man, we should just release these. Just for the hell of it. He wouldn't let me. So I said, all right, fine. Well, I, I, you know, you're not releasing nothing. Nobody's going to touch you with a 10 foot pole. Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the truth. I mean, any, any goodwill that was there when he came out of wherever he was, retirement, that's gone. I mean, that's just, it's just, you know. Oh, forget it. That's gone. He did that thing with Gene, and then he was, and then after that, for me, he was putting Gene down. And it's just crazy, you know, crazy, crazy. I always regard, too, the Beck, Bogart, and A Peace album as a phenomenal record, one of another underrated record that you're on. I mean, when, when I heard that, when I first heard that, I was just blown away by just the, the, just the tightness of that band. Um, on the record, especially you know the debut album, Blue Murder. Yeah, Is that what you said Blue Murder. No, yeah. Beck, uh, Beck Bogert, Beck Bogert, in a piece. Oh, the BBA one. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I just got uh, something moved in the in the doorway. There, I was looking there for a second. <laughs> I lost where you are. Uh, well, you know the, the BBA thing. We we didn't just like get together and do this big hype of here's BBA. You know, we were on, we were out on tour with the second King Cobra band when Jeff called, uh, Jeff's manager called uh, our manager and said that Jeff wanted to play with me and Tim, which we were going to do, and that was going to be Cactus. And uh, so we were doing the second Cactus band with Pete French and Warren Fitching and Dwayne Hitchings and me and Tim. And we were more like a faces kind of band then. And then, uh, so Jeff was going to do a tour of America and he wanted me and Tim to play on it. So we thought it would be cool to do and see how it works. You know, so we did that. And while we were playing with Jeff on his tour, on some off days, we would play cactus gigs. So it was pretty crazy. You know, we doing Jeff Beck and cactus at the same time. And then the next tour was in the fall, and it was the Jeff Beck group in America featuring Carmine, you know, Jeff, uh, Tim, and Carmine. You know, so now it's building into that BBA thing. And then after that tour, then we went in the studio and we started uh, working the songs and writing the songs and, and all that. So we were pretty tight, you know, from doing two tours with Jeff by the time we hit the studio. And then when it, when it came out in, in the following year, which is 73, like April around, then it came out in the full bore of Beck over in the piece. You know? So oh, yeah. it was kind of a build thing, you know? I love that record. Yeah. I mean, Carmine, it's a very I, record. Yeah. I mean, I could talk to you for hours, man. There's so much that, you know, I, I I'd love to talk to you. I know, you know, we don't have all day, but, uh, you know, yeah, and, yeah I got, I got it. I do got to get going. Yeah. But you know, and we're then, packing to go to New York and, uh, I got to go get my implant put in today. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, but, you know, well, I'll see you at the, I'll see you at the podcast. Maybe we can talk together with my brother. Absolutely, man. That would be great. That'd that's be great. a whole other. That's a whole other. That's a whole other thing, you know. But he got the business. You know, it's like crazy, you know. I mean, we're the only two famous brother drummers that have gotten to the heights and success that we've gotten to. That I know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Carmine. And, uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Well, hey, thank you very much. Once again, everybody, that's that's Carmine Apiece. I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk again soon. Yeah.
92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. It never dawned on me how much walking I used to do until I bought a house in the suburbs. Like when I'd say, I'm going for coffee, of course I was walking, but now it's like three miles and no latte's worth that. I find myself inviting people on walks with me, like it's a scheduled activity. This morning, my neighbor asked me what I'm doing, and I actually said, I'm going for a walk with Nancy. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 